You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. In the middle of fields, there were two Amish farms on the street where I grew up. And right behind our house, we had a nice big backyard, and right behind the, um, our property was a huge field that um, is now used for sports teams. But at the time, I don't even think that there were any teams uh, playing there. There was just a large drainage ditch that um, ran from one side of the field to the other underneath. So I have a picture of something similar Oh, it's washed out up there. But you get the idea. You know, you've seen them before. Um, There was a small creek that uh, sometimes ran through when there had been enough rain water. Sometimes it was mostly dry. And we played a lot in that creek and in that gully area where lots of rocks were. And one, I was also one of four or three other siblings, one of four kids. Um, So one day we got this idea that we wanted to crawl through the drainage tunnel um, under the field. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things that was like, maybe it's dangerous in a fun kind of way. So I wanted to do it. I remember this. Um, We headed in. uh, We took a flashlight. I don't think each of us had one, but maybe whoever went in first, which was not me. Um, And as we're climbing along, somewhere along the way, there was only a trickle of water that was running through at the time, but somewhere along the way, it got very slippery, like the whole tunnel was slick. And we had been kind of straddling you know, the creek as we're going along. And as you're squatting down, straddling, that's kind of hard to do. So once it got slick, it was very difficult to stay out of the water and the mud. So we got wet. We were hitting cobwebs and wondering, you know, where the spiders were as they got caught in our hair. And then at some point, I couldn't see the light behind us nor could I see the light of the tunnel ahead of me. And I started to wonder what else is living in this tunnel that we might encounter. Uh, And it didn't take too long until things were totally dark. Like you couldn't see your hand in front of you dark. Um, Suddenly it felt like I was too far in. It wasn't fun anymore. Uh, The doubt quickly turned into fear and regret. For doing this, there was no way, but there was no way just to, but to commit to keep going. At least that's what I thought. I was thinking that we had to be more than halfway through, so it'd be better to just commit and keep going than to turn around. But the dread in me just said, this has to be over soon. Just keep going, get to the other side. Eventually we did make it to the other side, and we never did that again. <laughs> Uh, but that, that point of realization that I had made a mistake and I didn't want to do this uh, is what brought this story to mind. For, for some reason, again, I had decided that there was no turning back. And from that point forward, it was all about convincing myself to go through with it. 
that this is going to work out fine. Just get, get through it to the other side. In today's story of David and Bathsheba, I found myself wondering, how far are you going to, to go before you turn around? How bad is too bad? How much darker can this get? David just keeps going. He, he made an impulsive decision abusing his power, and he's already so far in that he won't turn around. I found myself thinking, there, there's no other side here. Like, you have, to, you have to face what you did and turn around. So, before we get into the depths of this story, um, I just want to acknowledge that today's scripture includes abuse of power, sexual assault, uh, the murder of a loved one, and if you go a little farther, the loss of a child. So we are going to focus on the truth teller in this story who calls out the evil here and talk about what repentance looks like. But for anyone who's experienced anything like this, please just take care of yourself today as you need to, feel free to step out. Uh, as Aaron mentioned, there is like a lounge uh, to the left there, so with a couch if you need to just take a minute. There's also a basket on that back table with um, note cards and notebooks and pens. If you're someone who likes to draw or doodle or take notes because that helps you listen or process, feel free to just get up and help yourself at any point. All right, so the story today begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read to you for a little bit, and then at another point there will be some scripture up, up on the screen. I'll ask one of you to read for us. It begins, In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman, and the report came back, isn't this Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to take her. And when she came to him, he had sex with her. Now she had been purifying herself after her monthly period. And then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I am pregnant, she said. Now in this intro, we get we get this detail that tips us off to wondering what is going on with David. In the season when kings go off to war, it says. In the spring when kings go off to war, David stays home. Now he is a warrior leader. He's spent his life as a leader in many battles, as you can see earlier in 2 Samuel. But here in this intro, it's clear that he sends his leader and army off to war while he stays. 
in Jerusalem. And in contrast to that, we see him right after that getting off of his couch in the late, late in the day and pacing, or in another translation, strolling on the rooftop. In all this leisure time he has at home, while he's not doing the things that kings do, he finds himself watching a woman bathing. You might wonder why Bathsheba is bathing outside, but remember there is no indoor plumbing. So here, as he peers down on her from his palace roof, he finds her beautiful and inquires about her. And once he knows who she is, in relationship to her dad and her husband, we get those details, he sends for her. Now we know for sure that her husband, Uriah the Hittite, is one of the officers in his army. So he is off to war. Uriah is off to war. And it seems likely that David, given David's actions, that her father, who's also mentioned, is also in the army. So with both of them off at war, he seizes the opportunity and he sends his messengers to take her and he has sex with her. He's thinking only of his pleasure and how to get away with it. But then she sends word to him that she is pregnant and he begins this highly calculated cover-up. First by taking uh, or by trying to make it look like She's pregnant by her own husband. He brings Uriah back from war for a bit, but then that doesn't work out. So he sends Uriah back into war to the commander, delivering instructions to have him killed on the battlefield. So Uriah's carrying his own death plot to the commander. You can read more of the details. I'm not gonna go through the rest of that chapter. But when Uriah's wife heard that her husband, Uriah, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And after that time of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her back to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But what David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. And now we pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. Could someone read for us? And if you'll give me a minute, I'm going to check which microphone we're going to use. This one? Okay. Someone willing to read this part of the story for us? Second Samuel 12, 1 to 10. So the Lord set, sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. 
Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man, and he said to Nathan, Surely, as surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over, because he did this and because he had no compassion. You are that man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave your master's house to you and gave his wives into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was too little, I would have given even more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife as your own. You used the Ammonites to kill him. Because of that, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never, <clears throat> never leave your own house. Thanks, Kim. So God sends Nathan, the prophet, to speak this truth to David. And Nathan strategically does it in a way that exposes David's wrongdoing and, and walks him into facing down himself and seeing the reality of himself as a person who has done this. But the story of the ewe lamb and David don't exactly line up, so David doesn't recognize himself at first. He gets drawn in to the details of the story. Um, if I didn't distract you too much by closing those doors, you, you might have heard or, or caught that the description is that this, this poor man had nothing else, just this little lamb. He raised it. Um, it grew up with him and his children. It would eat his food and drink from his cup. You, can, you get the picture that this is a tender um, relationship that they have, that he has with this you. Uh, so David gets drawn into the beauty and the simplicity of this poor man's lamb and his love for his lamb and the greed and the selfishness of the rich man who abuses his power and uh, with complete disregard for the poor man, um, takes the life of his little lamb. So when Nathan says, this is you, David finally sees what he has done. And he feels conviction. He goes on to confess his sin to God. Um, psalm 51 is a very famous psalm. You might be familiar with it. Sometimes we sing songs that have the language from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David is calling out, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He knows his transgressions. And he confesses to God, he says, against you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. 
which brings up a lot of questions. Um, David's confession to God is a first step in the work of repentance. The word traditionally translated as repentance really means something more like a return or a coming back. Instead of carrying on, which leads to extended harm, and going deeper into the darkness of his sin, repentance requires an active stop and a return to face the choices that he made and the people he has hurt. I think repentance requires humility and intentional um, intentionality to come back to behaving as the person that he wants to be in right relationship with God and with uh, those around him. So David's confession in Psalm 51 is a confession to God, and harm done to another human being is an affront to God. So it's a good place to start. I think it's also important to consider what a meaningful confession and repentance looks like to those who have been harmed. Asking for God's mercy and confessing our wrongs according to God's unfailing love and great compassion is the starting point. We cannot face those we have harmed out of condemnation or judgment of ourselves because shame and guilt will cloud our ability to see the other person fully and to understand their experience of hurt. As a kid, I was always the one to come and confess my sin. I hated feeling guilty. And guilt was my primary motivation. I just wanted to confess it and get it off my chest so I could feel better. But repentance is much more than that. And we don't know in this story how or if David gets there with Bathsheba or Uriah's family. But he was also known as a man after God's own heart. And though he was capable of such evil, he also received God's forgiveness. So from that point in the story, I want to add to it from the work of Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. I've been reading her book on repentance and repair. Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. It's an excellent book. Um, and in it, she, re, re, the return of repentance is a restoration, as much as is possible, to the victim. And for the perpetrator of harm, it's a coming back with humility and intentionality. It's not about feeling bad or sorry. It's about taking a step. It's an actionable thing to be repentant. The turning implies action. And she, in this book, she distills um, steps from a medieval philosopher, Maimonides, who is drawing from the Talmud, which is the central text of uh, rabbinic Judaism. And, and she pulls out five steps of repentance, um, which I think are 
very helpful and concrete. We don't have a lot of time to explore all of them, but I at least wanted to share these steps with you so we could consider a little bit. Um, maybe some of them will ring true or feel helpful to you. So the first one is up on the screen, is confession. It's about owning what you did, not hedging or explaining or justifying so that you can be understood. It's just owning what you did fully. And she points out that a confession needs to be at least as public as the harm that was done. Confession is a way of asking for the community for accountability and help to change. And then the second step is actually starting to change. What do you need to do to become the type of person or organization? She talks about it also as a corporate reality. What do you need to do to become the type of person uh, who won't do that thing again? Good intentions aren't enough. There's actually, there, there's actually steps you can take to work toward change. And then the third step is to make amends. What this looks like depends on the harm that was done. It happens in the con conversation with the victim um, to work towards repair of the harm that was committed. And then step four is an apology. This happens, as you'll notice, late in the process. Because by now, hopefully, there's been time and space to understand the harm and the apology that can be deeper and more meaningful, more true. Oftentimes, the apology that comes right away is, comes more out of our own sense of guilt or shame than it does a deeper understanding of what harm was committed. So the deep work of changing is already underway by the time an apology happens. And then the fifth step is making different choices the next time. If you don't do the work to change, you'll end up repeating the same patterns. It's human nature. We all work like this. Again, our best intentions aren't enough. So figuring out concrete choices to make um, helps us to actually do the turning and, and go a different way. This is the work, this last step of making different choices is the work of facing down the false stories and engaging with painful reality. It's the work of being open to ourselves as we really are and of understanding other people's needs and pain are at least important, if not more so, than our own. It's about figuring out how to be the kind of person who sees other people's suffering and takes responsibility for whatever our part is in that, whatever role we've been playing, to own what we've done, and also um, owning this person that we are capable of becoming. This work of repentance is about allowing a failure to remake you and remodel you and reorganize you to see yourself and other people. You can't hold on to power in repentance. You can't repent without risking. 
Uh, sometimes you can think that you're repentant, but you get the sense that things aren't, still aren't right with someone. Has that ever happened to you? There may be a reason to revisit and to, to ask yourself, why didn't healing happen here? What wounds might be present? What power dynamics are present? What did they need that they didn't get? What's holding me back from giving those things? What personal or emotional risk am I not willing to take here? There's lots of questions we can ask of ourselves that help engage us in a truly transformational process. There's a lot more to repentance um, that I'm still learning. But the main point I want to make here is that there is a path for repentance and repair that begins with the mercy and loving kindness of God, and it provides a path for our own transformation and hopefully healing for those we hurt. David's story is a caution to, for a lot of things here. Uh, to watch out, to not abuse our power and position, to not overlook the harm we do to others, don't keep going or cover it up even for yourself. It doesn't go away. And in fact, it's, the harm is multiplied often. Um, don't be too quick to condemn someone else for the very things that we have done or don't want to see in ourselves. David was quick to see it for the, the, uh, the rich man. We need to be people who tell the truth and have people in our lives who tell the truth like Nathan did. Nathan came and spoke to David in a way that exposed to him what he needed to see. And the good news is that confession is just the beginning. There is a path to repentance and repair, again, that begins with the mercy of God. And it leads to our own transfer transformation. We don't have to be afraid of turning and returning to face our choices and our impact. We don't have to double down on why we're right or cover it up or plow ahead. We can turn and return to God and others. And I think that is the way of confession, repentance, and transformation. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.